morning, church. It's good to be back with you uh, in this place. Uh, been able to be here at least last week to hear Riley preach, but there's nothing like being up here getting to share the word with you. Uh, this morning, we're finishing our parable series called Side Door Stories, and I, I have loved preaching this. I hope these stories have come alive in new ways as we've walked through the different parables that Jesus has taught. Next week, we're going to begin another series talking about leadership and uh, we're going to begin a new process of selecting elders that comes around every three years or so. So I'll be providing a couple of lessons, and you'll hear more next week about all that process. But uh, this morning, I want to encourage you to open to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, it's the parable of the wheat and weeds this morning that I want to focus on. I'll read that in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to pray uh, before we start the message this morning. God, my prayer this morning is that our uh, words and our songs have been a a sweet aroma to your ears, God, because we do trust these words, that you are a God who loves us and is willing to go to any length to reach us. And God, that is a song that just sticks in my head. It sticks in my mouth, God, as I repeat those words over and over again. It's such a reminder, God, of the good God you are. And we've seen that through this series in the way that you pursue us, in the way that you call us to more, in the way you call us to, to shrewdness and wisdom in the midst of a world it seems to uh, not see the wisdom of the kingdom of God. So this morning, I, I pray you would surprise us again, that you would shock us back into the way of the kingdom, God, rather than the ways of this world that we come so accustomed to. And this morning is one of those ways you need us uh, to not be a part of as a church. And I pray you would make that clear today, that you would point us back to what it means to be your church, according to your son's words. I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts, It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 and following. Then Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads and the weeds also appeared, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, Didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. Servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. I want to start with a confession this morning. I am an HOA's greatest nightmare. Now, it's different for other people, perhaps, than us. It's not the late Saturday night parties that we have at our house. It's not the RV that we park outside of our house six months out of the year as we're traveling back and forth. That's not us. It's not even a, a dog that we own that would start barking at 5.30 in the morning. It's what we do to our yard. Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly somebody who keeps, I don't have a green thumb, let's put it that way. I'm a yard killer. And this has happened all the way from the early days of our marriage. And it was easier to kill a yard back then because it was in Abilene, Texas, which is basically like what happens, right? I mean, we didn't water our yard. The only time it got water was when it rained or when the water main uh, broke in our backyard. 
But as time went along, uh, that lawn killing moved on to other regions. And it wasn't as easy to kill yards there. We moved from Abilene to Denver, Colorado. And you would expect that it'd be a little easier to keep up a yard there, perhaps, right? But I still kept my project of killing yards. It happened for the first time when we started to notice some thinning areas in our yard, some weeds that were coming up. And we weren't the only ones to notice because we got that first letter from our HOA compliance department. They signed it nicely, sincerely, right? And so we prayed about it and hoped God would uh, do it because we didn't try to do anything else until we got our second letter, and it wasn't quite as kind about it all. So we decided we better do something about this. But before we decided to do something about this, I decided, you know, I'm a preacher. Probably ought to look to Scripture and see what it says about this. So I built my case based on my Greek New Testament and saw if it would work or not. Listen to these words, Matthew 13, 28 and 29 in that context. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. And then in quick proof texting manner, I turned over to Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Uh, Hear these words as well. I add this to my arsenal. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And there I had my case. Now, my kind wife said, you know, before you send that case in, you might consider we're not in Abilene, Texas anymore. Your NIV might not be all that great a case to build with this HOA. And so we went ahead. We called the lawn service company. We resodded around the yard and pulled some weeds. When that happens to you, by the way, do you ever look outside your blinds and wonder who was it that called the department, right? Or the compliance people who was driving around? And so we sodded the yard and then we had to water it, of course, right? Because if you're going to keep that sod in there, you got to water. So we're watering three times a day, just like People encouraged us to do who we put it in for, and all of a sudden we get a knock on our door, and it's the HOA compliance department. Excuse me, did you know that you're watering your yard more than regular water regulations? Which is it? We've got to either have grass or, you know, we've got to water the yard to make it happen. It's frustrating sometimes, right? But if you look at this passage, you have to wonder which is right, pulling the weeds, watering the yard. I mean, can I get an amen that we need to stick it to the HOA this morning, right? All right, let's get real about this parable for a moment. If you're anything like me, some parables seem a little out of context. I didn't grow up in an agrarian culture on a farm. Some of you know these stories right off the bat faster than I do. And so I have to do some research to figure out what they mean. So I come to a parable about the mustard seeds and it doesn't hit right off. I've never really spent time with mustard seeds. And then I come to a parable about a shrewd manager. I still confess to you, I don't know what that meant. And I preached it several weeks ago. And then you come to passages about oil lamps and making sure you have enough oil and not running out. And you wonder, what in the world is this? It's like another culture, and it is. But this parable seems more straightforward. Because most of us in our work have put in a good day's work and found out that it's somehow been corrupted. Or someone's come in behind us and they've done something destructive to it. It's a frustrating feeling, isn't it? You do all this great work, and then all of a sudden you come to find out that there's been an enemy that sowed in something else. And when I read this story, I can connect with that. I mean, just imagine this scene, right? This farmer goes out and sows wheat in his field, and he's doing all that he can do to get this right. But during the night, an enemy comes in and sows weeds in the midst of the wheat. And these friends come in, and they they hear about all this, and they want to help. And so they say, hey, can can we fix this? Can we pull these weeds? These weeds are everywhere. And some of you know what this is like, because right now in your life, you're going to need this message this morning. Because some of you have you've, you've sown and you've sown seed after seed. You try to do everything right in your life. 
You've tried to pass on faith to your kids. You've tried to keep Sabbath. You've tried to be generous in all that you do. You've sown seed after seed, and all it seems like you're getting back is weeds growing up in the midst of some wheat. And you're wondering, why is that? Why do I seem to do all the right things? But what's coming back to me is, is, is more like other things. It's, well, some of you know this because you've had sickness in the midst of sowing good seed. You've had job loss in the midst of that. You've got kids that you wish were living uh, on a different track than how they're living right now. And you're wondering, okay, I sowed, sowed weed. Why do these weeds keep popping up? And this parable should come as a great comfort to you this morning. Because it doesn't matter how much good wheat you sow, the enemy has other plans, and that means weeds will always be in the midst of our lives. It's never going to be perfect. God's never promised us that. In fact, he promises us that there will be trouble. And we need to know this because sometimes we butt up against problems in our lives and we blame God. But this parable Jesus tells reminds us there is an enemy that's sowing weeds in the midst of our wheat fields. There's an enemy that that there, there are forces in this world that are not for you that are set on your destruction and the destruction of your kids. And our God is so much more powerful than that. But as long as we live on planet Earth, short of the return of Christ, we are always going to deal with this dynamic of seeds that we've planted for good and the weeds that grow up in the midst of it. Kingdom can be present, though, even if you see weeds around you. That's another part of this parable, right? Is that, yes, there are weeds coming up, and it's easy sometimes to focus on those because they grow up so much faster than the rest. But... But you need to hear this also, that even when you see weeds coming up, the, the kingdom of God is close by. That's what they proclaim in Luke 10 when they go on mission, isn't it? I want you to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near to those who receive it and even those who reject it. But the servants ask a great question to the farmer, because if you've got weeds that are growing up around you, if you've got stuff that you didn't plant growing up in your field, then you're going to ask a question a lot like this one, I think. This is in Matthew 13, verse 28. I want to read one more time. An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? I mean, this is a no-brainer to answer this question, right? If you have weeds, you pull them, right? You have branches that aren't growing as well. You, you, you prune those branches so that other fruit can come. Of course you pull the weeds. Everyone knows that. You know that. I know that. The HOA definitely knows that. So Maddox and I decided that we were going to do better with the next generation. This was a few years ago. I, I looked at this passage, and we had some weeds while this HOA thing was going on. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to teach my son to do this better than I was taught to do. This. So we went out in the yard. I want you to watch what happens when we try to pull the weeds. like to pick some weeds? Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Okay, well, let's go get the gloves, okay? What are we going to do? Pick weeds up. Pick weeds up, yeah. Gloves on, okay? Here, this hand. Alright, let's go with this hand. Alright. You see any weeds? Here. Daddy do it? You want daddy to do it? Alright. There you go. Here, can you hold that one? Okay. 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 okay, we'll work on these. Let's see if I can get them out. Oh, that one's having a little trouble here. That's the problem with weeds. You can't get them by the root, you know? Is there any in the grass? No? I see some. I see some. Can you get it? You got it? Are you picking it? You picked a weed? Is that a weed? Yeah. Yeah? 
Good job, son. You find me? Pull them up if you can find some weeds. You gotta get those weeds out. But you gotta pull them out. You gotta pull them hard. You see? Did you get it? Let's see here. What we got? Yeah. What we got? Is that... That... Oh, you got grass. Okay, we're working on a weed, right? Look. Look. I think I found one. Can you get the weed right here? It's right... Right over here. Can you get the weed? Yeah, pull it up. Pull it up. You can get it. Is that a weed? Yeah. You got it. No, that's just more grass. I wonder if that's what God sees when he sees us sometimes, right? It's like we get our gloves out, we're ready to go. Apparently pulling weeds isn't as easy as you think it'd be. And I think that's the point Jesus is trying to make. Listen to verses 29 and 30 again. No, he answered. Don't pull them up because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and then uh, put them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The HOA says pull the weeds and we say, stick it to the man, right? Don't pull the weeds. That's what Jesus tells us. Because the problem is while you're trying to pull up weeds, you never know what's going to come up with it. In the end, God is the only perfect judge, amen? The only one who can discern perfectly what weed and what wheat is. But we don't really trust that, do we? Now, we trust we're a whole lot better at this whole thing than maybe even God is. We can figure this out. We can pick it out. We're pretty confident in our abilities to discern between good and bad seeds. We have a lot of a, a confidence in our abilities to figure people out. And Jesus isn't nearly as confident in us as we are. Now, this parable tells us we're to live like wheat. It's really important that we live and follow the commands of God, that we sow wheat seeds around, right? But it's not our job to pull the weeds, which means that the church is going to be a bigger mess than sometimes what we want it to be. Believe it or not, there are weeds in our church. People in this church who sit on these pews every Sunday, who don't have in mind the things of the kingdom of God. Maybe they're here and they're just trying to help their kids become better citizens. Perhaps there are people in this church who have caused tremendous harm to you or to your family. You're thinking, why are they still here? Why don't don't the elders do something about this? Why do these weeds get to continue on? Some of you are good Bible students and you know, uh, Colin, you need to keep reading, right? Because chapter 13 says this, but if you go to chapter 18, chapter 18 talks about church discipline. And yes, There are times when church discipline is something that the elders of the church should step up and and do to protect the sheep and the flock. But my question to you is this. How certain are you that the person you think is a weed actually is a weed? Most scholars think that the weed Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13 is something known as lolium timulentum. It's known as darnell is another name for it. And if you know anything about weed, which I don't know all that much, I'm just going off of others, right? But Apparently, this, 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 this weed actually grows up in the same zones where wheat grows up. And the only way you can tell the difference, really, is when the head of that weed actually grows up at the end. Which is part of what this parable seems to be talking about. He talks about when, at the end, God's going to be able to discern this. But sometimes we pull things up way too quickly, not realizing it was wheat and not weed. So maybe the greatest gift that I can offer us this morning is to make you doubt your judgment a little more. That seems to be Jesus' point. I read a book a few years ago that convinced me that I'm wrong more often than I think I am. It's called uh, Being Wrong, a good title. 
I encourage you to read the book, actually. It's a fascinating book. It was written by a woman named Catherine Schultz. If you're somebody who wants to save on the book, you can watch some TED Talks that she talks about this whole dynamic. I actually shared some of these ideas uh, last year when we went through the, the Simple Truth series. And here's the case that she makes. Most of us go through life assuming that we're basically right about everything all the time, every single thing that we imagine. That we have a, a, a grasp of the facts, and others who see things differently just might not see facts the way we do. But as infallible human beings, it's important to realize that we are wrong about all of that. None of us are correct about anything. If we can say amen to anything this morning, can we say amen to that? In fact, we're wrong about what it means to be wrong. Being wrong is actually a good thing. It's a vital part of how we come to see things in more accurate ways. It's a vital part of our growth spiritually to see that we've been in the wrong and, and God and his spirit is turning us back to the right. I mean, just to be honest, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I've preached error in this pulpit before. Some of you can say amen to that too, right? I mean, I, I don't see God as God truly is. It, First Corinthians, Paul talks about, we see things now as in a mirror, a dimly lit mirror. We don't see clearly until we see God face to face. And we as leaders do the best job we can teaching our kids as well as we can the truth of the gospel. But we never see things as clearly as we one day will. So we do the best job that we can, but we're all wrong at one time or another. In fact, it's interesting because there's no experience of being wrong. There's an experience of realizing that we are wrong. But by definition, there can't be any particular feeling associated with being wrong. Because the whole reason it's possibly wrong is that we think we're right. In fact, when we're wrong, it's like we're the coyote in the Roadrunner cartoon. You remember this scene, right? Runs off the edge of the cliff. He thinks he's standing on firm ground. And that's what it is when we think we're right about things. And sometimes we're really off the cliff. So I should revise myself. It does feel like something to be wrong. It feels like being right. This is the error of pro the problem of error blindness, that whatever falsehoods each of us currently believes is necessarily invisible to us. Otherwise, we'd be right again, right? Think about the telling fact that error literally doesn't exist in the first person present tense. You can't say, I am wrong. The only thing we're able to say is, I was wrong. And Jesus knows the dangers of humans trying to pull weeds because he knows how wrong we can often be trying to discern the difference. When you place judgment on someone, you only know you were wrong after the fact. You only know you were wrong after you've made the damage and created it all. And this is the problem with certainty. The more certain we are, the more accurate we feel, and the more we open ourselves up to evidence that confirms the beliefs we already have and closes our eyes to the beliefs that could be right, but we can't possibly believe it because it's too, too threatening to our opinion. Schultz talks about something else that's interesting that brings me humility about my memories and the way I see things. He, he talks about flashbulb moments. Now, you've had these if you didn't know to call him that, I, I promise you. She tells the story of Ulrich Nieser, who's a 13-year-old boy who was listening to the radio on December 7, 1941, when he learned that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. And the experience made this huge impression on that child, as it did everyone in our nation who heard this news at that time. Uh, for decades to come, Ulrich would carry around the memory of a radio announcer that he was listening to during a baseball game being interrupted to bring this story about Pearl Harbor. In its vividness and its intensity and its longevity, Nieser's recollection was typical of how our minds react to unusually shocking events. Think about your own memories about key events in American history. The JFK assassination. 
You remember where you were and who told you and all those things? How about the Challenger explosion? Or those of us who are younger, 9-11. You remember those memories vividly. And if you're an American, I would bet anything that you know exactly where you were that day. You remember how you learned the news and what thoughts you had about what had happened, who was with you at the time. And I would bet that those memories are as vivid as they could possibly be. I would guess it's probably more vivid than what happened to you on September 5th of 2001, right? I bet you have a high degree of confidence about the narratives you tell about those moments. But based on the research, you're likely wrong to one degree or another about those details. Nieser certainly was. Forty years after the fact, something suddenly dawned on him. Professional baseball isn't played in December. He realized he'd remembered incorrectly. And by then, fate would have it that he becomes a a psychologist, a professor of psychology at Emory University. And in 1989, he published a groundbreaking study on memory failures like the one he had experienced. Now, before his work, the going theory is that we were able to remember and kind of time stamp memories in our minds. Remember things vividly. Our memory works that way. And in 1986, when the space shuttle Challenger exploded, Nieser went to work to test out his theories. He surveyed his own students about their memories of the disaster after it happened. And then three years later, he came back to them to ask the same questions. And the results spelled the end of conventional flashbulb memory theory. Less than 7% of the second reports matched the initial ones. 50% were wrong in two-thirds of the details. And 25% were wrong on every major detail. After 9-11, the mother of all flashbulb studies was started. They, researchers did the same thing. So on 9-13, researchers reached people out to people from Boston and New York and Washington, D.C. and St. Louis and Palo Alto and Santa Cruz. And they asked each of those people, 3,246 of them, three questions. Where were you? Who were you with? And how did you feel? And the participants were asked the same questions a year after, three years later, and then 10 years after 9-11. And what did they find? Everyone knows where they were when they heard the towers fell. Everyone claimed to know that. It's burned into their memory. But are those memories accurate? No. Especially in the first year after a flashbulb event, all kinds of discrepancies creep in. One woman talked about how she remembered hearing about it in the kitchen when she first heard about the attack. But several years later, she reported it was actually when she was folding laundry in the laundry room. Another said in 2001, she saw the attack while she was watching the Today Show. And a year later, she was convinced that a girl in her dorm room had rushed in to tell her the news. And yet, with all that evidence, you still think you don't fit that percentage, right? You would swear you know exactly where you were and who told you. You're convinced about it. We're all confident as ever about where we felt we were and what we felt in that moment. For most of us in the room, it didn't happen, though, as we remember it. Which means that Jesus is right. We ought to doubt ourselves a whole lot more. We do. Our judgments, our memories, how right we are. And all of this causes me to be a bit more humble about the things I assert, about the beliefs I hold, about the memories I have, about who's in and who's out. You see, certainty sells in our culture. Certainty wins, certainty grows churches. We love leaders who are certain that will tell us these are who the bad guys are. These are who the good guys are. This is who's inside the line. This is who's outside the line, as long as we're inside the line, right? But in this parable, Jesus doesn't push us toward more certainty about our judgments. He points us to humbly admit that we aren't as good at judging as we think we are. 
And Jesus offers us a word of warning. He's saying it's possible that you can pull a weed. But it's also possible that when you're doing that, you're pulling out wheat at the same time. We start the process for him anyway, ahead of time. And I'm here to tell you that's not our job. So we can stop looking for the perfect church because God's kingdom has weeds all over the place. And that's the way, apparently, it's going to be until judgment day. This parable, as I've been dwelling on it, makes me want to make a commitment. That if I'm mistaken about a person, I want to err on the side of weed and not wheat. I'm scared to death of pulling something up that I thought was weed and coming to find out later it was wheat all along. Because in the end, we all know that the only vote that counts is God's. But we still tend to live as if we believe we can sort it out before God will. One of my professors in school talked about a time when he was actually preaching on this parable. And he writes about that account in a book that he wrote. And I want to share that with you. The Sunday arrived, and the person designated to read the parable just before the sermon was one of my students. Five years before that moment, anyone would have looked at the young man and said, he's a weed, bad news, wild kid. But godly grandparents took him in. Grace of God worked on his life. He's going to be a fine youth minister. I'm sure glad somebody didn't yank him up. As it turns out, weed was wheat. So I've got a message for any of you who might consider yourself the HOA compliance department for the church. We're not pulling weeds. You might think they're weeds. You might be right in some circumstances. But our God has a way of turning what we think is impossible into possible. Turning what we thought was weed and putting it in a bundle that says wheat. We're going to take a chance that God can judge that better than us. Because in all reality, all of us who've committed our lives to Jesus, we're all at one point just a weed that God has redeemed and turned into wheat. Let's close in prayer. God, we're sorry for the ways that we have acted as your compliance department. For the way our certainty has led us to treat people in certain ways. For the way our certainty about ourselves and How bad we are doesn't have hope for redemption either. God, right now I pray for those who see weeds all around them. That have planted wheat and they're wondering what in the world's going on. Why things haven't gone as they planned. And I I pray that you would give confidence to the fact that you will work in ways that we think are impossible. God, we trust that your kingdom is present and it is advancing even in the midst of fields where weeds are all we seem to see. God, we also pray that we can be the kind of church that doesn't sort people before they find their way in, that doesn't try to clean fish before we catch them for you. But we realize, God, that's your job. It's your job to bring conviction in people's lives. And we pray your Holy Spirit would do that right now in our world with our loved ones who don't yet know you, with those who have had seeds sown into them, but right now it seems as if their path looks more like weed than we we pray. We request, God, on their behalf, people that we love desperately, that you would move and you would work and we're going to stop judging it before the final chapter is written. We want to work with you as your gardener, as your farmer, not to cull things and, and pull things aside by God, but to trust that you will do that far better than we can. In the meantime, we're going to trust that with enough care 
and with the redemption of your son, that all things are possible. God, I pray that prayer right now over people that matter deeply to people in this church right now. People that urgent prayers are being prayed on a constant basis. We want to trust the story is not complete, and that you're at work. And we pray for your spirit to convict and move even right now and do that in our lives as well. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.